IRS issued regulations last year saying they're not going to claw it back. They're not going to penalize anyone for using up their exemption amounts. But the flip side is, and what your question brought up is that if you don't use it all up today, it could be a use it or lose it scenario. And so that's why you do really need to take this into consideration and you know see if you need to do planning. Thank you, um, everybody who's chiming in here. If you want to leave comments, I guess you could do that. I'm, to be perfectly honest, I'm not really following Twitter. So if you were like dropping, if you're dropping comments on Twitter, I probably won't see them. Um, <laughs> so I apologize, but you're welcome to do it. Um, but we're talking today about using the estate tax exemption. Uh, so I thought maybe we just kind of tee up that issue, like why? Why are we even talking about it? That'd be the first thing. Um, and then talk about ways to use the exemption. I suppose once we've made our case for why somebody should, that then we should talk about ways to use the exemption. <laughs> and then assuming people are convinced that they should use the, convent, the exemption. Um, and then just kind of talk about some of the mechanics of it. Um, just maybe a little bit of a foreshadowing of that. Like part of the discussion here is that it's, uh, almost September 1, and you know, it's August 28th now, it's almost September 1, and by the end of the year, I think most people, uh, most professionals are feeling like if you're going to do some gifting and you want to be sure that you're getting the maximum amount of benefit out of doing the gifting, like you need to do it before December 31st or by December 31st, uh, and Rachel and I were just talking before we jumped on here how um, you can't just date everything December 31st, too. Mm-hmm. Uh or you can't drop everything off at uh, your attorney's office on December 30th and expect that it's going to get done because you're just going to be, you're going to be standing in a, lo- in a long line probably this year. Mm-hmm. So just to maybe tee up the, the issue here then. So right now, everybody is afforded a, a lifetime gift tax exemption and also an estate tax exemption. And the gift tax exemption and the estate tax exemption, they kind of hand work hand in hand. So if you use, if you make gifts during your lifetime and you use some of your exemption, an exemption meaning if you make a gift or you die owning property that exceeds that number, then you have to pay either gift tax if it's a gift during your lifetime uh, or a state tax if you're dead. Uh, and so the exemption numbers are the same, but it basically, it doesn't work exactly this way, but it, but essentially it works uh, for simplicity's sake that if you use a exemption on gifts during your lifetime, you you have already used the, uh, that amount of the exemption when you die, okay? So it's not available to you when you die. And the exemption gets taken like right off the top. So you just kind of like take whatever the exemption number is and then you subtract from that your lifetime gifts, the, the amount of the exemption that you use during your lifetime for estate tax purposes. So if you used up all of your gift tax exemption and it was equal to your estate tax exemption when you die, you'll have zero estate tax exemption. Uh, and similarly, if the estate tax exemption was less than the gift tax exemption was during your lifetime, and you used up all your gift tax exemption when you die, your estate tax exemption will be zero. Okay. So right now, the exemption number is $11.58 million. It's a, it's a number that's indexed for inflation, which is why it's a weird number. Um, but that's the number per person. So 23.16 or something uh, per couple, or 23.2 if you're kind of rounding up, uh, per couple, per married couple. They're kind of combining their forces. And the proposal is that if Biden wins the election and the Democrats 
take control of Congress in November, uh, that they're probably going to reduce that exemption number. It's a historically high exemption number. It's never been anywhere even close to that uh, that level in the past, even when you index numbers for inflation. And so having that high of an exemption seems to be on everybody's chopping block. It's on, it's in the Biden plan and it was in the plan for basically every other uh, Democratic candidate who put out a tax proposal during the, the Democratic primary. Uh, it was right there. And so we it's hard to know, of course, uh, what the number would end up being. Uh, Bernie Sanders was proposing 3.5 million. I think Biden is proposing going back to the 2017 number, which was 5 million indexed for inflation beginning in 2010. So let's say five and a half, maybe somewhere around there. Um, So, and I could see that happening. And then even if they do nothing, let's say uh, Biden wins, but the Democrats don't take control of Congress. The way that the law is set up right now, in 2026, the exemption is going to go down by half, okay? Because what they did is in 20, uh, 2018, excuse me, they raised the exemption to a base number of 10 million, and they said it will sunset in 2026. So in 2026, it goes back to 5 million. So I think fairly good chance, although, you know, uh, I don't know that I've ever really been right about any of these prognostications and guesses, and it's really just a guess at this point. I have no insider knowledge, but uh, my guess would be that everyone will be comfortable in the Democratic side as well as the Republican side, uh, potentially, to go down to 5 million, because that's what's going to happen already. And the law, and that's where we were uh, pre-2018, and that was a law that was passed by the Obama administration, that 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 $5 million base number. So under those circumstances, obviously, if somebody has more than uh, $11.58 million, they should be using up the extra exemption amount now. And if somebody has $5 million or more, they should be thinking about using up their extra exemption amount now and pretending like the law is going to change in the future because Again, if nothing else happens, it is going to change in the future in 2026. And the exemption number is tied to inflation. So it gets inflation adjusted every year or for most years. And so it does go up. But you have to understand that inflation usually doesn't keep pace with the um, increase in value of investments. So let me just kind of throw a couple numbers at you. So if you're just assuming inflation is about 2%, which is roughly what it has been in the last 10 years, um, 5 million, if it compounded, you know, com- compounding an interest at 2%, 5 million after five years would be five and a half million. Well, a fairly reasonable rate of return would be, uh, would be, five, would be 5% not 2%. So at 2%, you'd have five and a half million of exemption if it's a $5 million base number. But if you had actual 5% compounding, you'd have $6.3 million. So even just based on like the inflationary adjustments, and then you start layering on like, well, what is an actual reasonable expectation for the way that um, wealth grows? Uh, You don't keep, you outpace the inflation. So it's always better when you you look at those kind of metrics, it's always, always better to do the planning now because you're making the gift now and you're pushing off that extra appreciation. And where you're pushing it off is to the people you want it to have it. So like kids, grandkids, et cetera. The, the differential between the growth at say 2% and 5%, um, it starts to go up dramatically the longer you play this out over time. So the difference between say five and a half million and 6.3 million is 
is like 860,000. Well, 860,000 is a 15%, 15.6% increase uh, over 5.5 million. Okay. So you did, you did 15.6% better with the 5% compounding than the 2% compounding. When you stretch that out over 20 years, the differential is 78.6% better. Okay. So it just starts going like this. Oops, going like this. Everybody can see my hand, um, which again is just part of the logic of you do the gifting now because the amount of wealth under these sorts of assumptions, and that's all you can really do is assume, project out what the future is going to look like because nobody really knows. But based on those assumptions, the amount of wealth, the difference in the amount of wealth between the exemption you're, you could have if it's indexed for inflation and the growth in your investments that you'll have, they start to separate very, very broadly. And so it's always better to start pushing off that separation, so to speak, to into the hands of kids and grandkids and doing it in usually doing it in a way that they're not also not going to have to pay a state tax. And we'll kind of get into some of that stuff here in just a second. But I just wanted to kind of illustrate that so that people understand the there's there's a little bit of a logic behind this. It's not just because lawyers are trying to drum up work. Uh, it's because there's this this uh, mathematical logic that applies when you start making these assumptions, which are based on really historical data. The historical data says this is the way that inflation works. You know, historic again, the last 10 years, inflation has been 5%. And most historical data, most studies that say the market show that even very balanced portfolios go up by even more than 5%, okay? six or 7%. So, and that's even including uh, adjustments for inflation in those numbers in most studies. So when you look at that kind of data and then you start running the numbers to see like projecting out what's the difference, it starts to get it to be a very stark difference. So let me get, let me throw just a couple of like actual numbers at you. So let's say you have a married couple, they have, they have $20 million in wealth. They're doing fantastically. Yeah, that's, that's a ton of money. Uh, that's a ton of wealth statistically. Well, at a 5% growth rate in 20 years, $20 million is $53 million. And so even if, say, at $20 million, you don't have an estate tax problem now, in 20 years, which could be the life the remaining life expectancy of like a 60-year-old, in 20 years, you're going to have a real problem. Uh, and the estate tax right now is a 40% tax. Uh, so avoiding having to pay a, a 40% tax is usually a good idea. And maybe I should say planning to not pay uh, that tax. We're not, we're, we're not avoiding it. We're just trying to plan to not have to pay it. Uh, just the same as, say, somebody might make contributions to charities because they want to take deductions in a year where they have uh, a high income tax hit or they want to make contributions to their 401k pre-tax because doing it pre-tax reduces your tax burden plus you get money in a tax deferred account you know these are just tax planning moves somewhat akin to those that if you know about them and you can kind of follow the logic they start to make a lot of sense really quickly and in this case it's preserving money for family members that presumably you care about yeah absolutely and i think brent too it's it's really important that you stress like it's not just we're preparing for, you know, this election and what could potentially happen. And then preparing, of course, for 2026, when the, uh, this exemption amount sunsets back to its pre 2018 levels. But it's just like you said, it's, it's logic. It's there's, there's so many reasons why you should be doing the planning today, rather than waiting till middle of November, when we see what happens rather than waiting till December 31st, or rather than waiting till 2026. 
Um, and I think it's really important to stress too how you're talking about this is a really historic high, this exemption level that we have now. Like you said, it's it's double what it was back in 2017. And so, you know, it might not stay. And you know, you and I were talking about earlier, you know, we've got the CARES Act that got passed this year. We've got a really high deficit. And like you're saying, a lot of um uh a lot of political um, party members are really thinking that, hey, this is something, this is a good way to kind of get some some revenue generated again. And so it is definitely a, a possibility that can happen this year, next year, if not 2026. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, the biggest thing that we can stress for people is that, okay, let's hope for the best. And, you know, maybe this doesn't get, get chopped down to its pre-2018 uh, levels. But let's prepare for the worst in the fact that, all right, it is going to happen and we got to get this planning done as soon as possible. And like you said, talking to your attorney and your advisors before December 31st instead of calling them up, say 3 p.m. on New Year's Eve, probably the best decision to do just because it is going to take quite a bit of planning. It's not going to be this last minute thing that we could just, you know, throw a few documents together for someone. Yeah. So, and, and, and just kind of one point on that which is, I, I have clients of every political persuasion you could imagine, okay? And they have wealth that puts them into these kind of categories. And even, I'd say, the, the most liberal of liberal-leaning of my clients, um, if they have a choice between giving their money, for example, to a charity of their choice or giving their money to the federal government, they would rather give it to the charity of their choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, in essence, in the eyes of the tax law, government units are just charities. They're nonprofit entities, right? Mm-hmm. They're, that's what they are. They're public public entities. And so if you're choosing to pay a tax, you're really just choosing to give money to a charity. It happens to be the federal government. And not everybody's comfortable doing that, especially with their family wealth. They would oftentimes, they would rather, if they're going to choose a charity, choose a charity that is focused on a particular issue that they care about, not the federal government that's going to take it and use it in its budget for whatever budgetary purposes it decides. Yep, that's that's a really good point. So then let's kind of talk about some planning techniques. Now, there's a lot of different um, techniques that someone can use this year. Um, we're not going to get into the weeds too much because you and I could get really nerdy really fast and talk about this for a long time. <laughs> we'll um, lose so everybody. Exactly. It's, it's early on a Friday. We don't want to get that technical. Um, but let's kind of just go over, I think, a few of the techniques. Obviously, this depends on the client's particular circumstances, what their goals are. Like you said, is the goal more um, giving back to a specific charity? Is it more preserving that wealth for future family generations? Um, so, uh, given us lawyers, we love acronyms and so it, it wouldn't be a wealth and law podcast with, without really talking about acronyms. So, um, I'm going to throw a few out there. So one technique, um, that's a really great, easy technique that someone can utilize this year, um, to kind of use up their exemption amounts is a SLAT. And that is a spousal limited access trust and, um, a SLAT basically it's a gift from one spouse to an irrevocable trust, and it's gonna be for the benefit of the other spouse. So kind of let me, and it could also be for the benefit of children and and grandchildren as well. So kind of let me break that down a bit. So we have, like I said, a gift from one spouse, let's call this the donor spouse, and then we have a beneficiary spouse, and like I said, kids and grandkids. And um, we, the donor spouse is going to be making a gift to an irrevocable grantor trust. And 
um, the reason why we have a grantor trust, we've kind of talked about the differences before on this podcast about grantor and non-grantor. Yeah, we're not going to get into the weeds, um, but with a grantor trust, um, that means that our donor spouse is going to be paying the income tax on um, the trust funds, which is actually what we want because then the trust funds can grow without having to pay you know, income taxes on it. So it's, it's a great little benefit for the trust assets to kind of accumulate and appreciate a bit faster. So we have the, the donor spouse give some money to this irrevocable trust. And then we have um, an independent trustee. And um, we say independent trustee, of course, meaning that you know this is not a spouse, this is not a kid, um, but this is a person who, we would hope to kind of listen to the wishes of the grantor. Um, and this independent trustee has the discretion to make distributions of the trust assets to the beneficiaries. And that includes that beneficiary spouse. And so really when you have a slat, then what happens is, you know, you've got the donor spouse, they put the money into the trust, they make that gift. The trustee can then make discretionary distributions to the beneficiary spouse, which indirectly, then kind of can help benefit the donor spouse. And kind of how this works, so like I said, you, you have this gift. So the donor spouse is going to be using part of their gift tax exclusion amount. That is important to know. So when we're looking right now at making gifts, here's one way to do it. All that money though that's put into the irrevocable trust, it's now going to be out of their estate and it will not be included in their estate when they pass away or when the surviving spouse passes away. So that's a great idea just to get rid of money um, get, get rid of a piece of property. This could be uh, a family business. This could be um, really any property that we want to see have a high appreciation. And so then, you know, you put it in, it's valued at the day that you made the gift. And then say in 10 years from now, it's worth double the amount. Like you said, because we got great investments. And at that point, it's all out of that uh, donor spouse's estate. So it's, it's a really great, useful tool. Um, and it's, it's something that, you know, people should be able to consider taking advantage of this year. Right. And the, the ability to say, use an irrevocable trust that then can shield those assets from estate tax at multiple generations mm -hmm. is huge. There's, there are, um, kind of two different angles at which you're oftentimes, this is not true in every single state. So I don't, you know, people in, in the other states that, that are different from this, you know, don't need to yell at me, but mm -hmm. um, oftentimes you're, you're kind of attacking two different problems with the irrevocable trust. So first of all, the irrevocable trust is protected from estate tax just by the way that it's set up, even though it may give the family very broad authority to use the money that's in the account. Like, really, really proud authority. It could be like almost anything uh, they can spend the money in, in that trust account on and it wouldn't be subject to estate tax. And then in most states, you cannot create a, a creditor protected trust for yourself. That's, this is changing. There are about 18 states that say otherwise, but in most states still, uh, if you put property into a trust for yourself, it's not protected from your creditors' claims. Your interest in that trust is not protected from the claims of your creditors. However, if you put property into a trust for another person, now the trust property is protected from the creditor claims of that other person. So you're giving them something that they can't give themselves. And very much like with the estate taxes, once you 
put the property into somebody else's hands directly and they own it directly, it's subject to estate tax. And same thing with the creditors. Once you put the property into their hands directly and they own it directly, now it's subject to the claim, potential claims of their creditors. So it's like you're, you're kind of killing two birds with one stone by using an irrevocable trust. Irrevocable only meaning that you, the person who created the trust, cannot change the trust. It doesn't mean that the trust can never be changed. It just means that you personally cannot go to the trustee and say, give me the property back. That doesn't work. But the trust can be changed and we can structure it in a way where it can be changed and be flexible. It just means you're not going to be the person that's going to do that. So just to, clar just to clarify that, I think sometimes when you think about uh, taking some of your money and putting it into a trust that's going to last for decades and it's going to just going to be locked in there in stone, uh, that's a frightening prospect. But we, the way we draft the trust, and I'd say the way most people draft those trusts, um, there's a lot more flexibility than that. The, the in inflexibility is more directly to you, the person who put the property in in the first instance. That's a really good point to make. And I think too, it's, you know, just also want to point out that we, we, we just had a podcast on estate planning and divorce. And it's important to know that when you have a slat, you should, uh, a slat may be um, the technique that you want to use. If divorce is not going to be um, really forthcoming kind of soon, um, you want to create a slat if you're in a lovely, happy marriage um, and, and you don't see that marriage ending anytime soon, just because like I said, you have your spouse as the beneficiary of that trust. And so um, if your spouse is going to be receiving distribution, uh, you know, potentially receiving distributions from that independent trustee, hopefully you guys are, are still married. So that is one right. thing just to remember with the sweat. Right. So then another technique um, that people can use right now is an idget, and that is an intentionally defective grantor trust. And so when we have an idget, again, we have an irrevocable trust. So just like you said, Brent, we've got all the, the standard, um, the grantor can't change that trust. Um, and it's going to be a grantor trust, just like the slat is. So again, the grantor is going to be um, paying all the income tax on the assets in that trust. And that's what we want, again, in this scenario as well. And so really what an idget is for is, you know, we are... Um, the trust is going to be disregarded for income tax purposes. Like I said, grantor is paying the income tax on it, but all the assets are um, not going to be included in the grantor's estate, just like how the slat was. So it's, it's really good. So we're freezing the assets. Um, basically, at the time, we're going to be putting them into the trust and the grantor is going to be paying the income tax on it, but not included in their estate. So that's great. So how an IGIT works is we're actually going to be doing a sale of property. Um, and so it's going to be a little bit different in, um, different from the slat in that respect. So we'll make a sale of property to the trust. And again, this can be any sort of property. We see a lot of uh, clients do it with family business interests. Um, it's also really important to note that with all of these techniques we're using, like an IGIT, there's a whole bunch of other techniques that we can kind of layer on top so for example, if we're going to be selling a family business to an IGIT, we're probably going to uh, recapitalize uh, the shares of that, or you know, whatever the interests are of that family business, get maybe some non-voting voting shares. So then we could add some discounts on there so that the shares really um, aren't valued at kind of what they typically would be because of Know, lack of control, lack of marketability. So we're also going to throw in a few other techniques if you know, your uh, tax planning attorney or advisor is going to be kind of using this, these techniques for you. So again, we're going to be selling the property to the trust and we're going to be doing it in exchange for an installment note. And this note is going to bear interest at um, 
the current AFR right now, interest rates are low, so that is really good for an IGIT. And um, it's also really important to note that the IGIT has to be funded with what we call seed money in order for this to be legitimate, for this to look like an arm's length kind of transaction um, in terms for the, for the IRS. So this seed money should really be about 10 to 15% is what people like to say um, of whatever the, the trust is purchasing. So, you know, if we've got, um, say we're putting in, uh, we're doing a $10 million note, we should probably have a million dollars in seed money in the trust firsthand. So that seed money now that, that the grantor is putting into the trust, that is going to be a gift. So that will use some gift tax exclusion amount. So let's make sure, you know, we're um, good on our levels and how much we've used so far. But then um, in terms of the note, um, now the note, the, the trust is going to be paying um, annual interest payments. And then at the very end of the note, there'll be a balloon payment of principal. This is just to allow the assets in the trust to again, grow without having to cough up a lot of principal, get the assets to really grow in appreciation. And again, whatever those assets are and all the appreciation in them, that's all outside of the grantor's estate. That's not gonna be subject to gift tax. So that's really good. Again, we want to have assets that are going to appreciate um, in excess of the AFR and um, really assets that we can just lock that value in on the day of. They're going to grow. We're going to have a huge number and all that can pass to your beneficiaries without the estate tax. So the idgets are really useful um, and it's, it's great if, you know, you just need to put a, you have a little bit of exemption amount left, you can use that with the seed money and then the rest can go estate tax free. Yeah, idgets are, are really useful and and you could do large gifts to idgets too and I'm 100% in favor of that sort of thing and not do slats. Mm -hmm. so if you didn't want to do a slat, uh, you don't have to, it's not, you know, it's not like a requirement of course. And so you could use the idget as a container to make large gifts into and then to sell assets. And so, yes, anybody who's wondering like, well, why would I want to sell assets? Because aren't I just getting back what I put into the idget and how is that helping me? The idea is that what you're doing when you do that transaction is you are betting that the future value of the asset that you sold is going to be worth more than what you're going to be paid over the course of the promissory note. Mm -hmm. So you're going to pick assets that have that potential. Of course, you're going to, you know, try to pick winners. Um, but the idea is that the future appreciation of that asset will be pushed out of your estate. Somewhat like we were talking about where if you make a gift now, you're pushing all that future appreciation into the hands of, of your family members. Same thing with the idiot. If you do a sale, you're pushing the future appreciation into the hands of the trust beneficiaries who are usually your uh, family members. So that's that's the idea. When interest rates are very low, which they are now, you can do these sorts of transactions for uh, depending on, on the risk tolerance of the client, you know, close to 1% right now. And um, even if you were going to be more conservative, you could probably do the transaction for somewhere around a 3% note. Well, 3% is still a really good interest rate and a really low interest rate. And so you're picking assets that are likely to grow more than 3% over the course of the note, you're going to do better. And in addition to that, because nobody can see the future and nobody knows what the future will hold, um, when you do a sale transaction like this, what you're doing is you're quote unquote freezing the value of the asset that's in your hands, that being the promissory note, at the value that's in the note. Okay, So now you know, uh, say these large assets that I just sold to the trust, 
in my hands, they're always going to be worth this amount of money. That, you know, it's going to be the principal and interest on that note. That's what I'm getting back. It's frozen in time at that value. And so it gives you some certainty about what your estate is going to be worth. Because if you're if you're on the cusp of needing to pay estate tax or you're over the limits to need to pay over the exemption numbers, excuse me, where you would need to pay estate tax, future volatility may not be your friend. And due to circumstances totally out of your hands, your estate could balloon in value because of market volatility, and then you die, and now you've got to pay a larger estate tax. So the logic is you're better off being able to pick the number now, and then you can deal with that number in, in the way that you do the rest of your planning, but pick that number and freeze the value. So you so now you know this asset that used to be a volatile asset from a valuation perspective is a frozen value. It's not going to change. That, you know, people trying to plan like uh, the professionals, uh, we like that sort of thing. If it's, if it's frozen in time and the value is certain, then we can really do some planning because uh, we know we know what the numbers are going to be in the future. We don't have to guess. Uh, so that's the idea with the idiot. It's this trying to shift future appreciation by doing a sale so that A, you get the future appreciation out of your estate and B, the thing you're taking back is a set value. So now you know that your estate is going to be less volatile uh, from a valuation perspective and you're not going to be caught when you die in a year where the asset that you sold is very is worth a lot of money. Exactly. And I think too, it's, it's good to point out that if say the, the grantor passes away during the term of the note, that that note, like you said, will be included in their estate, but we've frozen that value at that time. So like you said, it's, it's, there, we don't have to worry about whatever the appreciation is. All that appreciation is pushed off to the trust. It passes. It's just the note that's going to be includable in their estate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's uh it's a, fairly common transaction. Uh, it doesn't mean that it, it should be done carelessly, mm -hmm. but it is a fairly common transaction. Um, it's a transaction that the IRS is familiar with, and it's a transaction that's done a lot. Uh, and sorry, the transaction I'm talking about is the sale to the IGIT. It's a, it's a very common transaction. But again, it, it, it shouldn't be done carelessly. It really You do need to think through the steps um, and think through how you're, you're setting up the sale. Um, so even though I think it's conceptually easy to understand. Like in practice, of course, every case is different. You know, no, no two cases are the same because everybody has their own facts and circumstances. But in practice, you really have to dig into those facts and circumstances, see what it is that's unique for that client, and then and then structure the transaction according to those very unique facts and circumstances. So there's just there's no way to describe um, how you do it other than in somewhat general terms because every transaction is slightly different. Yeah. Now, okay, so Brent, got a question for you then. Mm -hmm. So what happens if someone comes and they're like, you know what? I already did all my planning. My attorney talked to me about this a few months ago. We've got it all down. I have no exemption amount left. I've used it all up, but they still want to do some more planning. What, mm -hmm. what, what options do they have? Well, this uh, sale to an idiot is a great option because mm -hmm. it doesn't use any exemption to do the sale. So that's one of the upsides to doing a sale to an idiot. They could also do what's called a grantor retained annuity trust or GRAT. And you can structure a GRAT so that you don't need exemption uh, to do the transaction. The GRAT is structurally kind of a kissing cousin of the sale to an idiot in the sense that with a GRAT, you put property into a trust and then the trust pays you back an annuity payment for a certain amount of years. It's usually no less than two years and you know maybe two to 
five, sometimes they're longer. But if you, if you, the person who set up uh, the grat, if you die during the term of the grat, all of the assets in the grat are included in your estate at their future appreciation, absent some sort of special circumstances. But like as a general proposition, that's what's going to happen. So if you're putting in assets into the grat that are appreciating in value, obviously you don't want to die and have those sucked back into your estate, which is what would happen if you died before the grat term was over. So there's that risk with the grat, but but in essence, it's a sale because you're putting assets into the into the grat. You get back an annuity and the way that we value the annuity, we would value it so that it's basically the same value as the value of what you just put into the trust on the day that you put it into the trust. And so therefore, it looks a lot like an idget in that sense. Um, grats are a little bit less flexible than idgets if you're really trying to check every single box. So for example, there's a tax called the generation skipping transfer tax, the GST tax. The generation skipping transfer tax is, is uh, it's a nasty tax. Uh, I don't want to have to get into <laughs> the details of it right now. Maybe we'll have to do a, a future pro- podcast about it, but uh, it's another 40% tax. It's actually a higher tax than the estate tax. And so you can plan around it pretty well with an idget. It's harder and some people would say impossible to plan around it specifically using a grat. So when you use a grat, you kind of have to go into it understanding that there is this GST planning deficiency with the structure. But otherwise, grats are great because you don't have to use any exemption. Uh, If they work, you push all the appreciation that exceeds the value of the annuity that you're getting back. You push all of that to your family members, give tax-free. And what you get back is, again, frozen in time. You know exactly what you're going to get paid. You're not going to get paid any more than the annuity payments. So as we were talking about with the idgets, like you've frozen that value. Now you know these volatile assets are only going to be worth X because you've exchanged them for an annuity payment that's only worth X. And so you don't have that risk, that volatility risk of dying in a year when your assets are very are worth a lot because the more they're worth, the more you're just going to pay in estate tax. So yeah, that's... Uh, I mean, these are these are transactions that are with family members, but of course, there's also a bunch of techniques that you can use to benefit charities as well. So if you don't have any exemption, you can give money to charity, and you don't have to have any exemption to do that. And so that's a, that can be a really useful way to do planning when somebody's already used up all their exemptions. So let me so let me throw that back at you just a little bit. So mm-hmm. if somebody say uses. 5 million of exemption today. And then in 2021, the exemption goes down to 5 million. How much do they have left? So if they use 5 million today and say it again, sorry, I've only had one cup of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) So they use 5 million today. And then in 2020, the exemption drops to 5 million. The exemption drops to 5 million, then they have used it all. They've used it all. They're out of luck. Yes. And it's good to point out too that that question is that, you know, if someone say then uses all of their exemption today, so they use all 11.58 million or 23 million for um, a couple, and then say next year, it, it drops down 5 million, they're okay. It's, it's not like they got screwed. No, they're good. They're totally fine. The IRS issued regulations last year saying they're not going to claw it back. They're not going to penalize anyone for using up their exemption amounts. But the flip side is, and what your question brought up, is that if you don't use it all up today, it could be a use it or lose it scenario. And so that's why you do really need to take this into consideration and you know see if you need to do planning. Yeah, and that's why we've been talking about using the extra exemption because if you use the exact amount that you're that you're going to be given, say in potentially in 2021, yes, you'll be at zero. If you use everything that you have now, the full 11.58 million, you'll be at zero mm-hmm. in 2021. You just will have used up 
twice as much exemption now than you'll potentially have in 2021 or based on current law, you're going to have in 2026. So that's really the, that's the little uh, tricky thing. That's the incentive right now is that if things don't go right, quote unquote, right from this perspective in the, uh, in the election on November 3rd, uh, you have something that you're going to lose and you should, you should use it now. And in fact, if you can use it all, you should absolutely use it all because there's no benefit in only going halfsies on it because you're not going to be, you're not going to be eating into the extra amount by going halfsies. You've got to kind of be all in if you can, if you can, it's a big number, obviously uh, a big, big number and. Uh, so what we're talking about is a very narrow subset of families uh, in the world. Uh, but for that narrow subset of families, this can make a big difference. It can be a million, millions of dollars in tax saving. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, uh, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, plenty of topics in, in this that you know, we could get into great detail on, and we probably will at some point at a future date um, on the podcast. So thanks for uh, getting up early and, and joining me, Rachel. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So, and thank you everybody for uh, for chiming in. Uh, we'll try and chop this up and post it as a, a regular podcast as well. So if you missed it this morning, uh, you can catch it later through our normal podcast channels. Thanks again. Have a good day. Hey listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.